Please remain standing and pray with me. Come Holy Spirit now, and Lord, through the word of God that you have given us, speak a word directly to our lives today. Lord, I pray for tender hearts from all of us. Um, pray for listening ears. I pray for those of us, for those of us to whom this teaching is is new and challenging, Lord, that you would give us the ability to hear your voice in it, where, you're, where you are indeed speaking truth. I pray, Lord God, for me as the preacher of the word, that you would uh, supernaturally empower me to bring this message. Give me exactly the right words to speak. And Lord, we will be sure to give you the praise and the honor and the glory. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, this summer we are in a series on uh, Christian anthropology, a sermon series on Christian anthropology. In other words, we're exploring what the scriptures teach regarding what it means to be a human being, to be a human being. And the reason that we have to do this is twofold. First of all, the Bible teaches that human beings are made in the image of God. We've heard that this morning, again, from the passage in Genesis chapter 1. But by linking the image of God, humans are made in the image of God, by linking us with the image of God, that means that we can't talk about, in the Christian understanding, we can't talk about God without talking about humanity. God has linked us to His image. In the Christian understanding of reality, we cannot talk about God without also talking about humanity. And on top of that, central to the Christian proclamation, central to our beliefs as followers of Jesus Christ, we talk about it every week in the Creed, is that in Jesus Christ, the Creator God of the universe put on human flesh, put on skin and bones, and became a human being. C.S. Lewis wrote in his book, Miracles, that God became man and the person of Jesus Christ was the central event in the history of the earth, the very thing that the whole story has been about. And all of the major, the second reason that we need to talk about this is that all the major topics today that dominate our cultural conversation from gender and sexuality, sexuality to race, to the value of human life, to how we treat the other, are all centered around claims about what it means to be a human being. These are all anthropological concerns. And if believers, if followers of Jesus are not firmly grounded on a biblical foundation, we will inevitably be swept away by the riptide of the secular culture's belief on all these topics if there's no counter-narrative being given. I can't think of a more important focus for the church right now. Uh, John Stone Street illustrates the importance of Christian anthropology when he says this, <clears throat> Non-Christian worldviews fail to ground the concepts of human dignity, value, and universal rights. Naturalistic worldviews, such as atheism, Marxism, and secularism, deny anything that is spiritual or metaphysical. Because all that is has resulted from natural, mindless, physical processes. Spiritual beliefs are fantasies that, like all human behaviors, result from chemical processes occurring in the brain. In this view, listen, no creator exists to endow special status to humans. Therefore, there is nothing intrinsic about humans that establishes their equality, dignity, or value. 
Instead, for naturalistic worldviews, there are only extrinsic realities, extrinsic realities like appearance and abilities to distinguish us from other humans or even from other animals. Many atheist thinkers like Frederick Nietzsche recognize that only the biblical vision of imago dei, the image of God, grounds universal human dignity, value, and rights. So this is a critical conversation that we're having this morning. Now, every Sunday at Christ Church, we are blessed to have with us people who are not committed followers of Jesus, uh, also people who are just beginning to explore the Christian faith. And if you are not a follower of Jesus this morning, or if you're coming new into the Christian faith, I want to welcome you to listen in on what is really a family conversation in this sermon. You need to know, by the way, you need to know that, yes, uh, we are weird, and we are out of step with the broader secular American culture. Christianity is weird. Russell Moore says that the gospel, that genuine Christianity, as opposed to mere cultural Christianity, is strange, freakish, and subversive. Can I get an amen? (laughs) But we also believe that since what we teach is, in our view, true truth, true truth, like Francis Schaeffer used to say, it is therefore public truth. It's not merely tribal truth. And we offer it to the outside culture for the, for the common good. The church does not impose this view. It merely proposes this view for those to consider it. Now, this morning we're going to talk about, this is where we come to the topic, kind of been bracing you for this. We're going to be talking about childbearing, about what procreation and fertility mean in the Christian understanding of what it means to be a human being. And this is out of step with the broader culture. And it actually seems especially fitting that we do so since we're going to be baptizing a brand new little baby, Audrey, uh, Audrey Alger, this morning. Uh, Audrey is so new, she even still has caterpillar hair. I get to touch it this morning. So, as we've seen in previous weeks, in Matthew chapter 19, when Jesus wants to direct us to God's purpose and design for humanity, what does he do? He points us back to where? To the creation account, to God's intention for humanity in creation. And so, listen again to that key passage from Genesis chapter 1, verses 27 and 28. So God created man. Now that word in the Greek uh, version of the Old Testament is anthropos. Anthropos. It doesn't mean male. It means human. So God created the human in God's own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And at the end of the passage that we heard this morning, God sums it all up, and he says, and God God saw that it was very good. This human creation, and its intended role in, in God's greater creation, is very good. Now here's the first thing that I want you to see in that passage. Are you ready? God's creation of the human person as male and female comes with an immediate command. 
is there's God creates a male and female, and then there is an immediate command. It is the first command God gives the human creation and all of Scripture. What's the first thing that male and female are commanded to do? It is to have babies and to care for the natural world. When we, use, we hear those words, dominion, have dominion, rule over the fish and sea, have dominion over these things. The sense there in the scripture is not one of the rapacious abuse of God's good creation, but of tending and caregiving and husbanding and loving and stewarding the good creation God has given us. So he said, have babies and care for the earth. In other words, procreation is pro-creation. Ooh. I wish I'd come up with that. There, I, I want to just let you know, for those of you who may be new here, I have never had an original thought. I just know other good thoughts and kind of put them together. That's actually from Russell Moore. Procreation... Procreation is meant to be procreation. Be fruitful and multiply, and it will benefit in God's intention, not in the fallen experience that we have now, but in God's original intention was this, this was to benefit the environment. So procreation is built into the one flesh union of man and woman. So the sexual union in marriage, as we know, first of all, has a unitive function. In fact, Jesus points to that. If we were to go back and read Matthew 19, he actually quotes from this passage in Genesis chapter 2. We didn't read it this morning, so let me quote it for you. Genesis 2, 24. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So there is the unitive, the uniting, the one fleshness of the marriage union. And there's also the procreative function as well. And that's why, we've just heard that, that's why in the Anglican service for a marriage, in the preface to that service, it says this, the union of husband and wife in heart, body, and mind was ordained by God for the procreation of children and their nurture in the knowledge and love of the Lord for mutual joy and for help and comfort given one another in prosperity and adversity. Now, all of this up to this point sounds like a no-brainer. In fact, we're all pretty comfortable with this. But it has real implications for us who are followers of Jesus that, to use the technical term, gets all up in our business. It gets all up in our business. Yes. It means that if a couple comes to me, this is, a, uh, this is one of the implications, and this happens. It means that if a couple comes to me and says, hey, Pastor, we would like to get married, but we never want to have children. As a Christian minister, I am not allowed to preside at their marriage. By definition, a marriage that is intentionally not open to the bearing of children is, according to Scripture, not a Christian marriage. Now, obviously, there are men and women who come together who find that they cannot bear children, and their marriage is unintentionally childish childless, but they are still open. Their intention was to be open to the gift of children, and thus it is in keeping with God's design. But childlessness is not a part of Christian marriage. I told you that we were freakish, weird, and subversive. 
And this is linked to the being, this bearing of new life is actually, in that passage that we read this morning, it's linked to being in the image of God, isn't it? It's all there in the same passage of Scripture. How can that be? Well, you see, God's self-giving love, God's self-giving love is the source of all life. In other words, God does not create out of a necessity. We call this doctrine the aseity of God. Uh, yes, you just learned that today, the aseity of God. It means that God is sufficient in himself. God doesn't need me. He doesn't need you. He doesn't need creation. Within God's own being of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, in that eternal community of persons within the singularity of the Godhead, there is eternal joy, sufficiency, ecstasy, love. We are not needed. That means this that all of creation, therefore, is a gift of love. Everything that you see, all of God's living, breathing creation, including you and me, are the effulgence of the love of God. They are the outworking of God's love. We're not created because God needed us. He created everything because He loves it. And that's good news. It really means, literally, you are God's gift to the world. You didn't just think that. You really are that, John Stakeman. <laughs> so that is why God creates. And it's done out of an undeserved self-giving love. Now, when husbands and wives give themselves to each other physically in self-giving love, in the natural order of things, it also results in life. And so we reflect the image of the Creator even in that wedding union. And it turns out that God really loves kids. I mean, really. It turns out that having kids, according to the Scriptures, in case you were wondering, some, some parents of young children are, are doubting this, but <laughs> let, let, me, let me encourage you that having kids is a blessing from God. That's right, all of the sleepless nights trips to the pediatrician, spilled milk, skinned knees, broken dishes and broken hearts, expense and hassle of kids is a blessing. When my grandson Benny, when his mama passed out from being a mama, just took a 10-minute nap on the couch. That's all it took. 10 minutes of unsupervised time. Benny saw the opening. And he, he slipped into the bedroom. She was on the sleep on, on, sleep on the couch. Benny slipped into the bedroom where mama's, all of mama's colorful, and Benny's three years old, all of her colorful nail polish was in a single bag. And Benny, and Benny got that out. He opened that up, each one, each one. And he began to paint himself <laughs> all over. He looked like a Celtic Pictish warrior that had gone crazy. <laughs> Colored himself head to foot. Colored grandma's duvet and slipcovers. It was, don't worry, uh, Stain Devil makes something for that. Uh, so, and, and, and yes, even then, kids are a blessing from God. Behold, the scripture says, behold, in Psalm 127, children are a heritage from the Lord the fruit of the womb, a reward. Like arrows in the hands of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. 
He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. The Christian understanding is that children are not an imposition. They are a reward from the Lord. And, the, and blessed not only is the family, but blessed is the church that is full of them. You know, I came into uh, church a couple of weeks ago, somewhere on that side. I think, you, okay, you may be sitting on the pew where it happened, but it looked like a glitter bomb had gone off right there. That, you know what? That doesn't happen where there aren't children. <laughs> now, in some churches, seeing that, there would have been a board meeting to decide how to deal with messy kids, but not here. That is a sign of God's favor, blessing, and life. It's just like we built a, a church when we were in favor. We planted a church, and then after seven years, we finally built a church building. And I'm not kidding. It was like the first Sunday that we were, first or second Sunday, we were in the new building, and I was coming up the sidewalk to come into church, and there was, a, there was children already in the church, and there was one little boy who, you know, had come up to the, the windows right there in the entryway, the narthex, and, and put his face on it like a sucker fish and was attached to the window looking out at me, and his little tongue was just licking, licking and licking and licking. And you know what? It was awesome. It was awesome. His DNA was right there in that church. It is a blessing. Kids are a blessing. It might not sound much like it, but children take us out of ourselves. They, they stretch us. They are one of God's catalysts for helping us share in God's life of self-giving love. We give ourselves away because of the, you know, we are willing to give ourselves away and to endure those inconveniences and bumps because of self-giving love, and in doing that, God is making us more like Him. Someone has written, babies are catalysts. Are catalyst. They lead adults to care more about the future, to save, invest, make sacrifices, and defer gratification. With fewer children, there's less of that other-centered love that children inspire. And our already me-centered culture may yet become even more me-centered without children. And also, the scripture tells us that we read this morning in Mark chapter 10 that children show us something about following Jesus. But when Jesus saw that the disciples were rebuking people and saying, keep those babies away from Jesus, don't, don't let them get glitter or lick him, lick him or anything like that. But when, when he saw it, Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, let the children come to me, do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. In other words, we have to come to Christ in the same way a child would. And what is that? Well, we acknowledge that we have no self-sufficiency. We are powerless in ourselves to help ourselves on the most important transcendent level. We're powerless. And so we come to him like little children, without any sufficiency in ourselves, with utter dependence. And also like little children, we come with trust, expecting that we will be loved and received by him. Um, you know, uh, uh, Ellie, um, Chris and Jody's little girl, Ellie, will come up to me and she'll turn around and she'll just start backing up because 
she's expecting me to pick her up. I mean, there's no question in her mind that I'm going to pick her up. And you know, that's how God wants us to come to Him. With the same assurance of Ellie, you know, I just want, I know that if I back up, just knowing that you're there, you will, you will pick me up. I can trust you. Now, all of this talk about procreation and being open to babies begs the question, what about birth control? And here's where Christians really get strange, freakish, and subversive. And I'm going to tell you some stuff this morning that nobody told me when I became a follower of Jesus. Nobody even mentioned any of this stuff. And I want you to know as I, I speak about these things, we're not in favor of imposing our views on the rest of society, but we do think that they might be for the benefit for the rest of, so of society. And we hope that perhaps society would listen. There may be something good here. Christian believer, I want you to consider the classic Christian teaching, and I want you to do this. I want you to become very skeptical over artificial birth control. Now, they're not leaving because I said that. <laughs> that was their cue to get that baby ready to be baptized. <laughs> I want you to begin to, uh, to allow for a level of skepticism regarding artificial birth control. Albert Moeller, president of Southern Baptist Seminary, a certified card-carrying evangelical, writes that traditional Bible-believing Christians must start with a rejection of the contraceptive mentality that sees pregnancy and children as impositions to be avoided rather than as gifts to be received, loved, and nurtured. That's a change of posture. It's a change of orientation in the way we think. The contraceptive mentality that sees pregnancy and children as an imposition to be avoided rather than as gifts to be received, loved, and nurtured. This contraceptive mentality, he goes on to write, is an insidious attack upon God's glory and creation and the Creator's gift of procreation to the married culture. Now, while natural family planning, which by the way is between 98 and 99 percent effective now in avoiding pregnancy, when it's followed correctly. While natural family planning was approved by the Protestant reformers, Martin Luther, John Calvin, and the others were firmly opposed to artificial means of birth, birth control. This was not a Catholic thing, it was a Christian thing. I am going where no one, where, where, uh, to boldly go where no one has gone before. In fact, in 1908, the Anglican Church resolved that the use of all artificial means of birth control should be discouraged. It was only under the pressure of the now discredited eugenics movement, the one that gave us enforced sterilization of African Americans, you remember that, in North Carolina? It was only under the pressure of that discredited eugenics movement that the Anglican Church broke with 1900 years of Christian teaching and in 1930 declared itself open to artificial contraception. This, if I've never said anything else in this church, this is one of the hard teachings. It's a hard teaching for those of us who are followers of Christ because even in the evangelical community of which we would count ourselves to be part of, because we believe in the truth of God's word as written. 
We've been on board with contraception since the 1950s. And again, as I said, nobody ever spoke to me about this when I became a Christian. So I just want you to prayerfully open your mind to the possibility that there may be a more faithful way to image God's self-giving love in the sexual union between husbands and wives. I'm not going to be what Jesus said the Pharisees were. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. You travel heaven and earth to make one proselyte. And when you make him, you make him twice the son of hell that you are. You heap burdens on men's backs that you yourselves are not willing to lift a finger to bear. So now, even if you're not a Christian this morning, I want to give you two reasons for the common good that have nothing to do with the teaching of the Scriptures to just at least be open-minded to reconsidering this trend towards childlessness and artificial birth control in our culture. The first thing is just a fact, demographically. Childlessness is bad for society. United States fertility has dropped to 1.76 children per couple. The replacement rate is 2.3 children per couple. I don't know what a 0.3 child looks like. But seriously, we are down well below replacement rate. As Jonathan Lass writes in his book, What to Expect When No One is Expecting, countries where citizens aren't having enough babies can look forward to long-term economic stagnation and social deterioration. There is no economy that has managed to knock out gangbuster growth with a declining population. As governments raise taxes on a dwindling working-age population to cover the growing burdens of supporting the elderly, couples may conclude that they are even less able to afford children. This creates a vicious cycle of childlessness, overwork, and despair as seen in graying, shrinking countries like Japan or in Europe where some governments actually pay couples to get pregnant. Also, the second thing I want you to consider is this. I know this, these are challenging things. Again, we offer them with humility. Hormonal contraception is bad for the environment. In a recent article by Celeste McGovern, there, it recounts that EE2, the hormone in contraceptive pills, now permeates our water supply, even in lakes way up in Minnesota where no one is living near. It's having a dramatic impact on aquatic life, decreasing fertility, and causing physical abnormality. A recent report for the, from the U.S. Geological Survey, I know you didn't come to hear about the U.S. Geological Survey, but you're going to hear about it, found that birth control hormones excreted by women flushed into waterways and eventually into drinking water can impact fish fertility up to three generations after exposure, raising questions about their effects on humans who are consuming the drug without even knowing it is in each glass of water that they drink. Beyond the aquatic environments, the feminizing syndromes found in wildlife appear to mirror reports of male infertility, genital abnormalities, and testicular cancer observed in the human male population. These are serious things that need to be considered. But the good news, brothers and sisters, as we come to this baptism of Audrey this morning, is that all of us who are followers of Jesus Christ share in the joy, whether we have children of our own or whether we don't. We share in the, and the joy of childbearing when we bring a little one like Audrey to the font 
for holy baptism. We all promise in what we're about to say to be a part of Audrey's growing up, her formation as a mature follower of Jesus Christ. And one of the coolest things about Christ Church is that we witness this as those of us who do not have children find that the children we promise to raise as followers of Jesus actually begin to be part of our families too. Now, Jan is traveling this weekend, but I don't think she would mind me telling you that she has a special connection with the children of Ryan and Carla West. They just recently moved. And even though the Wests have moved away, when they come back, those kids want to be with who? They want to be with Jan. In the baptismal community, with followers of Jesus Christ, listen, water is thicker than blood. Water is thicker than blood. When we baptize Audrey this morning, we are all brought into a parental sharing with this child. You want a village to raise a child? Audrey, we've got one here. Uh, you didn't get to pick us out, <laughs> but we think we're exactly the village that God wants for you. We all share in the wonderful blessing and privilege of knowing that God loves kids and that to be surrounded by children, as the scripture has told us, is a heritage from the Lord. It is God's gift. The fruit of the womb is a gift from the Lord. We celebrate your baptism this morning, Audrey, and we look forward to sharing in the raising of you just like you were our little girl too. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. I invite you